You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 21st of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. A measurement of the fallout from Mike Bloomberg's meltdown in Las Vegas. A long look at Monocle magazine's new Austria special. Our weekly reflection on what the last seven days have taught us. Plus, everyone thinks that we're good at sports, uh, but I'm here to tell you that we're not. What is the national symbol your nation is only pretending to like? I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. And welcome to the show. If a week is a long time in politics, this week will have seemed even longer than usual to one politician in particular, Mike Bloomberg, the former New York City mayor and umpty billionaire. Bloomberg took part in his first debate with his fellow candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination in Las Vegas on Wednesday, already the ninth such all-in of this campaign. It went badly for him, so badly indeed that even in this hyper-accelerated news cycle, people are still wincing at the recollection 48 hours later. Well, I'm joined now with more on this and other election developments by our US elections correspondent, Thomas Lewis. Um, Thomas, we have had a few days to absorb the impact of Bloomberg's debacle in Las Vegas. Is it possible to tell whether it's really damaged him? Um, It's not at this very moment, Andrew, given that the opinion polls have been so fluid throughout this race so far. I think given that his uh, presidential campaign uh, to date was so unusual, given that he'd managed to climb up the opinion polls in such a substantial way, um, solely based pretty much on television advertising in several key states, uh, that this was sort of the um, flip of the coin, if you like, of how voters usually get to experience their candidates. So to see Michael Bloomberg on the stage in Las Vegas on Wednesday, looking very much like a deer in the headlights and looking very much unprepared for the huge torrent of attacks that every other one of the candidates uh, racing for the Democratic nomination threw at him, I think will have surprised many people. I think, you know, if you look at the latest opinion polls, Bernie Sanders is still very much in a very comfortable lead with everyone else climbing up very gradually behind him, but still with that gulf behind. So I think, you know, for those who who enjoy the drama of these things, I think Nevada could prove to be very dramatic if, for example, Bloomberg doesn't break through and that debate really did damage him on Wednesday. His campaign, has, of course, has been very sort of you know, retrospect about it, saying, well, look, this is his first time in the ring. Uh, bring on the next one. Well, let's have a look at those headlights he was caught in, um, specifically those uh, shone at him by... This metaphor is really hard work, but you know what I'm saying. Elizabeth Warren uh, was the more enthousi- most enthusiastic, I think, monster of Bloomberg in Las Vegas. Her campaign was starting to struggle by that point. Are we seeing any signs of a revival? Um, we are, but it is in the context of a very sort of small and gradual revival of her rivals as well. I think for Elizabeth Warren, uh, she has found herself in quite a tricky position where those who are 
diehard supporters of her rival for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, uh, that of the Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, of course. Um, they are so precious about their candidate that they get very um, angry, if it's <laughs> fair to put that lightly, uh, towards pretty much anyone else who isn't Bernie Sanders. And I think for them, Elizabeth Warren is someone who isn't the true progressive that she claims to be. Now, for everyone else, more moderate voters, maybe independents, some of Elizabeth Warren's policies are just too far to the left. So she's found herself in this like no man's land where she is an incredibly impressive candidate, performs very, very well in debates, um, performs very well when she meets voters and in sort of keeping the support of those who are working for her across the states in these early stages of the primary campaign. And I think if you saw before the New Hampshire primary, there was a televised debate and Amy Klobuchar, the Minnesota senator, she gave an absolute knockout performance during that debate and then came in a very strong uh, finish in the New Hampshire vote itself, which has led lots of campaigns to see the value in these TV debates, even though we've had so many of them so far and they're still not over yet. So I think for Elizabeth Warren, the debate itself was really a crucial moment. And I think there's no doubt that people will say that she she effectively won that debate and that even if she doesn't post, you know, say in the top three in Nevada tomorrow, uh, that still there will be gas in the tank of her campaign thanks to that performance in Las Vegas on Wednesday. Well, as we look ahead then to the next week uh, in this circus, which we will doubtless be recapping about seven days from now, what do we have coming up? So what we have coming up, we have the South Carolina primary. So these early stages of the primary process, you heard lots of candidates after Iowa, New Hampshire, you know, stating, raising the question, really, and lots of pundits in the American media, too, asking whether two states that are so predominantly white should have such a huge influence over the momentum of the start of a presidential nominating process. That was changed a few years ago to bring in more diverse states to the top four, if you like. So hence we have Nevada tomorrow and then South Carolina next week. Now, South Carolina, for a candidate like Joe Biden, who has performed pretty poorly so far, um, I think it's fair to say he'll be staking pretty much his entire campaign on the result in South Carolina. Uh, he has long touted his credentials as a champion of African-American voters. And I think it's about 60% of voters for the Democrats in South Carolina are African-American. So if he fails to break through there, it is quite tricky to see where he's going to break through at all. But then, of course, you have the question if, say, Michael Bloomberg, who seems to have been scooping up support from Biden, as that's ebbed away from him, if he doesn't break through in somewhere like South Carolina, who does that fall to? Does someone like Pete Buttigieg, who's performed very poorly among African-American voters so far, does he have some kind of breakthrough? Or does Bernie Sanders stretch his lead as the champion for voters in predominantly African-American states and predominantly Latino states and predominantly white states too. So this is going to be a very fluid race to come as the states get more diverse, Andrew, I think, as the primary process leads up to Super Tuesday on the 3rd of March. Thomas Lewis, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. It's time now for our weekly reflection on what we know today that we didn't last Friday. We learned this week, and none of us more so than Mike Bloomberg, that among the meagre cohort of things that even Mike Bloomberg's fabulous wealth cannot purchase is the deference of his rivals for the Democratic presidential nomination. 
Bloomberg took on the other contenders in a debate in Las Vegas, scene of many a title fight. If you can stand yet another of the boxing metaphors trundled out since, but come on, it's Vegas, so it's this all gambling, Bloomberg was rather left scrabbling for his gum shield to the accompaniment of a man in a bow tie counting to ten. We have a grotesque and immoral distribution of wealth and income. Mike Bloomberg owns more wealth than the bottom 125 million Americans. Ouch. I'd like to talk about who we're running against. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about Mayor Bloomberg. And furthermore, ouch. We learned, though the revelation will have surprised few who've been paying attention, that upcoming trade talks between the UK and the EU might be other than the amiable saunter through the daisies and tulips that British voters were promised. An especially delectable detail spotted in the EU's negotiating mandate suggested that the UK will need to, quote, address issues relating to the return or restitution of unlawfully removed cultural objects to their countries of origin. <laughs> This was widely interpreted as a suggestion that Greece might attempt to leverage the UK's self-inflicted predicament to seek the return of the Parthenon marbles, one of many treasures interred in the vast lockup of stolen goods known as the British Museum. These are sculptures purloined from Athens by Thomas Bruce, 7th Earl of Elgin in the early 19th century and about which Greece has not since ceased sulking. Although, in fairness, and not that it stopped anyone else running with it, we, which is to say we who read past the headlines, also learned that Greece denies that the cultural objects clause relates to the Parthenon statues. We also learned that there are few spectacles quite so undignified as legions of self-styled social media humorists all but trampling each other underfoot in the stampede to be first to make the joke about how Brexit shows that the UK really has... ...lost its marbles. We learned of a weirdly specific and almost impressively brass-necked example of Russia's continuing trolling of the United States. It turned out that the Kremlin-funded propaganda outlet Radio Sputnik has been cheerfully broadcasting on three stations in Kansas City, which, in the admittedly unlikely event that President Donald Trump is listening to Monocle 24 right now, is in Missouri. Disappointingly for connoisseurs of old-school agitprop, Sputnik's content these days is long on sledgehammer critique of the dysfunctions of the modern United States than it is on stirring encomiums to turnip harvests and tractor production. Here's the Russia analyst James Rogers on Tuesday's Globalist. It's part of the same stable as RT, formerly Russia Today. Put simply, it will try to sort of take the contrary view to whatever it sees as the dominant Western media narrative. It will often invite people on who don't have mainstream voices, people who would be seen in the United States or in the UK, for example, as being either to the extreme right on politics or the extreme left of politics. They are voices which are not heard in the mainstream, and the narrative that RT and Sputnik and others are trying to develop is to say, look, this is what you're not finding out.
We learned that the people of the US state of Virginia have only months to wait before they may, after centuries of enforced decorum, curse in public. Since 1792, what is known as profane swearing, like there's any other kind, has been punishable by a fine, 83 cents when the law was passed, $250 more recently. Last year alone, 25 people were cited for ignoring the signs which still warn against swearing in some Virginia jurisdictions. Tragically, it is not recorded how many supplementary offences were provoked by the receipt of a swearing ticket from local constables. No goddamn longer, however. This week, Virginia's Senate voted to repeal the law, and it now awaits only the governor's decision of to hell with it. Here's Joy Ladico on Thursday's briefing. I mean, I just always say about the Americans, you must remember that basically the Puritans, the most puritanical of the English, got in boats to go over and settle in the US. So the English at that point just began to relax. The restoration happened. There was men in tights and all sorts of kind of um, uh, very lush poetry. Meanwhile, over there, it's all very uptight. And I think we always think America is this great progressive nation, but it, it most certainly is not. And we learned that the most Australian of motor vehicles, the Holden, has finally run out of road, 72 years after Holden rolled the first properly Australian-built car off its assembly line. It is a sad week for Australians, now morbidly beset by Proustian recollections of riding in Commodores, Kingswoods, Sandmans, Taranas and Monaros. It is a sadder week for listeners to this programme who are about to spend the rest of their lives involuntarily humming this 19th 1970s vintage Holden Jingle. You're welcome. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. That's football, meat pies, kangaroos, and Holden cars. Football and meat pies, kangaroos, and Holden This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. The new issue of Monocle magazine is now on a newsstand near you. It is an Austria special, as may be discerned from the cover image of a schnitzel in the shape of Austria and acupunctured by toothpick-mounted Austrian flags. At which point, a fun pub quiz fact, Austria's flag design may be the oldest in the world, dating back to the 12th century and reputedly in homage to the tunic of Duke Leopold V, which, after one battle during the Third Crusade, was entirely soaked in blood, apart from where he'd been wearing a belt. Uh, On that cheerful note, joining me with more on what is in the new Monocle is Monocle's affairs editor and resident Austrian-American, Chris Chermak. Uh, Chris, first of all, the big question, which is, why Austria? It is often a relatively small, modest and unobtrusive country in Central Europe overlooked. So, uh, I will be honest with you, I've been racking my brain over this question (laughs) for the last few months, ever since I joined Monocle in October and discovered that as the resident Austrian-American dual citizen, one of my first tasks would be to profile one of my own countries (laughs) and figure out exactly why all of this matters. Not only that, I was actually tasked with writing an essay about why Austria matters effectively for the affairs section of this uh, publication. And... um, it's a really hard question to answer, <laughs> to be honest. I think because, put it this way, what matters, I think, about Austria is a whole bunch of little things. It's the mm-hmm. experimental side. It's the fact that it's a very traditional country, conservative country, that nevertheless is trying to break out of that uh, and has a lot of lessons to teach the world about that in this time that we're living in of sort of populism and 
conservative versus liberal culture and everything else, I think it has some very interesting experiments that are going on right now in Austria that that make it very relevant to our time. I've been to Austria a few times. I don't know it brilliantly well, uh, but it does have uh, an image like all countries do, and this is a subject to which we will return later in today's show. But I, I think if you ask people for things they associate with Austria, it's all quite stolid and traditional stuff, possibly even taking its politics into account verging on reactionary. Um, if people pick up this issue, which obviously they should, what are they likely to learn about Austria that's going to surprise them? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, one of the interesting aspects I can say as well for me of this was the fact that a number of the editors uh, that, that did this issue uh, came back from their trips to Austria with, with surprises of their own in the sense of just being sort of pleasantly surprised that Austria had more to offer mm. than, than one might expect. I think particularly uh, in the world of design, perhaps, that's, that's one area where there's some interesting things going on. Um, culture, I, I think, is something where Austria has a lot to teach the world, and we delve quite a bit into this idea of uh, culture and music. And as you say, there's this there's this very traditional image of Austria when it comes to its music, Mozart, Strauss, all of those classical musicians, but it's something that Austria is trying to break out of, I would say. And there's a lot of actually modern, newer voices that are out there that are trying to to put a to put a modern spin on classical music, um, and I think that's maybe one interesting element for me that we talked about in the magazine, um, is how they're actually trying to do that. The amount of money they're putting into to actually keep classical music alive and and new, and the same with theater when it comes to the Salzburger Festspiele. Uh, and other elements that I think are quite interesting. It's it's almost a commendably chaotic pursuit trying to improve on Mozart. It is, yeah. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, and uh, and that's what makes it for me fascinating. It's this it's it's this balance of traditional and new. Mozart brings in the money, but at the same time, Austria feels this responsibility, if you will to do something with it rather than just play the same music over and over again for the next 500 years. There's some great slice-of-life pieces uh, in the issue, a, a few of which you've contributed yourself, one of which I was especially drawn to and did want to talk about. Everybody knows about the coffee houses of Vienna and the other cities. Uh, you isolated one particular aspect uh, of those coffee houses and, and, and found a way to kind of admire it. Well, so... Admire is an interesting way to put it because it started with the fact that the waiters that are in uh, in Austrian coffee houses tend to be quite grumpy and not particularly reactive to any requests that you make, and that too is, 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 is this is this grumpy and non-reactive in the same way that we associate. Parisian waiters without right rudeness, or is it a more passive-aggressive? No, kind it's of a thing? totally different style because I think the Paris version is sort of haughty and sort of the sense of we're better than you. Uh, the Vienna version of that is a little bit more like I don't really have particularly time for you. I would say. <laughs> um, I think it does also fit though, and that's that's what I found interesting about it, uh, or or nice is it does fit into this sort of relaxed element of Austrian culture that you can spend three, four, five hours, if you want, in a coffee house and not have a waiter bother you. So and in, it's in, not because they're being hospitable. They just don't care. They just don't care. But <laughs> as a result, you don't have somebody coming and asking you, you know, would you like anything else? How are you doing? Would you like the check? Can we get you out of here? Anything like that. There's none of that either because they're simply not really present. They just leave you to your own thing and they'll do their own thing in the meantime. See, the, the, For me, that's an almost precise description of heaven. Just a really nice coffee house where everyone just leaves exactly, you alone. Exactly. Just sit with a news 
newspaper, sit with a coffee, one coffee because the second one might be harder to order, but it's it's a nice way to just while away the hours. And I did a fair amount of that researching this uh, this uh, magazine. Just as a final thought then, if anyone listening to this is inspired to go out and buy the magazine as they should be and is then inspired to go and visit Austria, possibly for the first time, um, as our resident Austrian, is there one, either one town or one city or one thing that you would direct them towards? Oh, God, that's a tough one. Um, I might go with the my father's hometown of Salzburg, uh, if we're going to pick that. I think it's a town that has uh, already a very strong tourism reputation, of course. Um, but I think it's just a very, very beautiful town to visit um, that is perhaps not quite as known as Vienna. Many people might go to Vienna, and I obviously love Vienna. It's where my parents are now. Um, but I'd say Salzburg is is also part of this interesting mix of sort of new and old. It's it's a very classical city, very traditional city in many ways, but it's in the middle of the mountains. Um, and there's a great little report actually on Salzburg in this issue as well. It's of, uh, of what to see and what to do when you're there. Chris Chermack, thanks for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View. You're listening to Monocle's House View with me, Andrew Muller. And finally today, an item which genuinely is an upcycling of a conversation which broke out over lunch in the Midori House cafeteria earlier this week. All countries have things with which they promote themselves abroad. The songs, cuisine, people and symbols held to represent the best of a given nation. But how many of these symbols might citizens of these given countries be willing to admit are kind of rubbish. First of all, a few sample confessions from Monocle staff. Hi, my name is Rhys James and I'm Monocle 24's senior news producer. My dad's family originally comes from a small town called Larne in West Wales, which the more learned among you will know was once home to the world-famous hell-raising playwright and poet Dylan Thomas. But I'll let you in on a bit of a secret. His poetry really isn't all it's cracked up to be. Sure, Dylan's 1954 radio drama, Under Milk Wood, is a thing of beauty, but don't let my countrymen and women convince you that everything he's done is wonderful. If you want truly great Welsh prose, then you need to look up his miserablest and less well-known namesake, R.S. Thomas. Hi, I'm Fernando Gusto Pacheco, Monaco 24's cultural correspondent. You know what's actually rubbish about Brazil? Our mental state. Everyone talks that how Brazilians are chilled, we're ready to party, we're so friendly. I mean, we are friendly, but we are extremely anxious. In fact, world leaders in anxiety. We took so much medicine, 10% of our population have extreme anxiety. And I have to be honest, I have a lot of OCDs, I am a bit anxious. Still friendly, I would say. But yeah, Brazilians are not as chilled as you think. I wish we could be a bit more Canadians and Mexicans. Apparently they are very chilled, according to many researchers around the world. So yeah, that's it. Sorry to be a bummer. As a Kiwi, I'm often called upon to defend the defenseless, quite literally, the Kiwi bird that gives us our namesake. It is one of the most rubbish birds in existence. It barely meets the grade of a bird. It can't fly, which is usually the first thing a bird should be able to do. It's some kind of like dirty brown color. People say it's cute, but it's kind of basically just a little bit redundant. And so in light of its redundancy, I've got some more options for New Zealand flightless birds that could be our icon. How about the moa or the giant moa? Think like an emu, but 12 foot tall. Very, very big. 
Maybe the Takahe, that's come back from extinction, it used to be extinct. It's back, everyone loves the redemption story. Or my pick, the Kakapo, which is the world's heaviest parrot, and it can't fly, a flightless parrot. So there you go, there's some options other than the Kiwi that we could go for. I'm Andrew Tark, I'm the editor of Monocle. I always feel a bit sorry for anybody who ends up in London trawling around all those tourist sites. Look, if you come from LA, let's be honest, Buckingham Palace is smaller than a media mogul's shack. If you go to Piccadilly Circus, you wonder, where are all the jugglers? Where are the animals? It's just a big disappointment, isn't it? Covent Garden, you can't even find a bush in the damn place. And Trafalgar Square, well, is it just a traffic intersection? Look, if you really want to enjoy London, go small, go off-piste. But you end up wandering around some of those big tourist attractions. My God, if you would go to Madame Tussauds, then I'm just sorry for you. I'm Nick Manese and I'm a researcher at Monocle. I'm Australian and everyone thinks that we're good at sports, but I'm here to tell you that we're not. Sure, we used to be good at cricket, rugby, swimming. Heck, there was even a stage where we were competitive at football. Now, though, you'd be hard pressed to find something that we'd win. We're like that guy that used to be good at footy in high school, but keeps telling everyone just how athletic and competitive he used to be. I think we're an optimistic people though. If you're in Australia in the lead up to any sporting World Cup, uh, you'd be right in thinking that we were gonna win it. My name is Chris Chermak. I am the affairs editor of Monocle magazine, and I want to talk about something that unites my two countries. I'm a dual Austrian and American citizen. What unites them both? The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music was an American production. Uh, it's very much loved in the United States and around the world. Uh, it's not very much liked at all in Austria itself. Uh, and part of the reason that people around the world should get used to is that Maria von Trapp was not necessarily a very nice person. She was actually quite violent to her music troupe. At the same time, I'd say that Austrians should lighten up a little bit themselves about the sound of music. It's something that brings in a huge amount of tourism dollars for Austria, and uh, I think they could get over themselves a little bit. It's a very nice, uh, very nice musical that, uh, that people around the world love and actually puts Austria itself in a positive light. And with more on this, I'm joined by Monocle's Carlotta Ribello, Portugal, Daniel Bache, Canada, and Chiara Ramella, Italy. First of all, me, Australia. I'm, I'm going to come out and say I'm going to go, I'm going to go big. Uh, our national flag and our national anthem both just not very good. Uh, and, and obviously, in, in criticising the flag, there's an implied diss of Britain's flag, which takes up a quarter of ours, which is one of the reasons I, I don't I don't know. I, I just don't think it's very inspiring. And our national anthem is objectively a dirge and should be replaced immediately with It's a Long Way to the Top if you want to rock and roll by ACDC. That's a good one. They still play that at a lot of uh, sporting events in Canada. Too much ACDC. I'll, t- I'll pick up off, off there, There's that, no though. such thing as too much <laughs> ACDC. Daniel. We just celebrated is... uh, the anniversary of our, of our flag, and we used to have one with the Union Jack on it. We got rid of that. I like the Canadian flag. It's very now. nice. I will admit our national anthem is, is rubbish as well. The US, I hate to say this, but the it's American national anthem is a belter. We, we, a we, we, we did an episode of the Foreign Desk once to decide the greatest national anthem, and I think it came third behind France and Russia. Okay, It's way up there. No. But, but you have yeah. to say, Daniel, which may be uncharacteristic for a Canadian, what is a thing that Canada promotes to the world as a virtue, but with, which is actually garbage? I think... 
I was thinking very hard about this, and perhaps too hard. There's, there's a couple of things. Everyone thinks that, oh, we're from, you're from Canada, you're very hardy, you can handle the cold and the wilderness and the outdoors. I think the reality is we, a lot of people in urban Canada have quite a detachment from the outdoors. And, and it's, I, it's so weird seeing all the Indigenous symbology we use as well. To, to show that we're like this great uh, country connected to our indigenous people, like even the you prime minister copy has... copy and paste yeah. a lot of this to Australia. Yeah, the prime minister has a Haida-inspired uh, tattoo on his arm from uh, Haida Gwaii, a very remote indigenous island off British Columbia. But uh, I just, I don't find that to be so true. And really, I hate the cold now. That's why I moved to Britain. <laughs> and it's even it's even worse sometimes when it's great. But I think the thing everyone thinks about when they, when they think about Canada, and perhaps not when they meet me, but that's uh, that everyone is polite. And I've never understood this because there are nice people everywhere in the world. There can be in, mm-hmm. in all around the world. But I don't understand why people say Canadians are polite. I think that we're just the same as everyone else. There are nice people and there are very mean people. So I think that's a bit of horseshit. And of course, <laughs> of course, v- v- very mean is about as damning as an insult gets uh, <laughs> yeah. from, from a Canadian. Uh, Carlotta, you are Portuguese. What is a thing that Portugal sells itself to the world with, but which actually a lot of Portuguese just on the quiet kind of wish Portugal wouldn't? Well, not as much as a thing, but as a person. Oh, dear. Um, it's embodied in one man. It's embodied in one man. And credit where credit is due. Um, a good professional and uh, great uh, in his um, field. But, man, Cristiano Ronaldo has to be, has to be the one. And, look, it even pains me to say this because not only am I, fr- am I Portuguese, but I'm from Madeira. Like, this is, this is a double same, heresy. The same island where he's from and the same city in that island. So it just keeps, you know, the circle just keeps closing and closing. But we love using him to promote brand Portugal and Madeira's tourism to promote brand Madeira and visit Madeira Island. Uh, but the truth is... Yeah, he's just not that great. <laughs> he's a great professional, but I don't know in terms of branding um, if he's the best to represent our country. Um, well, but his bust in uh, in Funchal Airport is something to behold, isn't it? Well, I mean, it was so uh, magnificent that it has been replaced. <laughs> so they, they should um, have made statues of that statue. But there there is something to be said about you know whenever I go back home to visit uh, family to land in the Cristiano Ronaldo airport. (laughs) Uh, Well, I must say the international Cristiano Ronaldo airport, sorry. And then you drive into the main city, Funchal, and you drive through the Cristiano Ronaldo Square where the Cristiano Ronaldo Hotel is that has a Cristiano Ronaldo Museum underneath. And you just think... You know, maybe we've had enough. Um, I mean, in fairness, I'm sure somebody as famous for his self-effacing modesty as Cristiano Ronaldo is is as embarrassed by this as you are. Oh yeah, 100%. I'm sure he completely dislikes it, and I'm I'm happy he's you know, not playing in a Portuguese club for now. At least in Italy, can share a bit of the burden with us for now. Um, And uh, yeah, I just. I know that he obviously is a great professional, and he is at the peak of his career, but. Brand Portugal should be completely separated from this man. Well, on, on the subject of Italy, uh, Chiara, your, your homeland is one with an enormous soft, fa- soft, ugh, an enormous soft power footprint. Was what I was getting at around the world. But is there any of what Italy projects abroad that you, as an Italian, think is possibly overselling it somewhat? I've honestly given this a lot of thought. Um, 
over a number of days. It is my recollection that you started this argument on Tuesday. Yes, and, <laughs> and, since, and since then, I don't think I've been able to conjure up anything, honestly. On, I, can, I, I can say this without any ounce of, of doubt or any ounce of, you know, I'm, I, don't, I, don't try, I'm try, I don't think I'm trying to big ourselves up here, but I can't honestly think of anything. Just nothing. Because when you think about it, most of the things that we say are good are genuinely good. You know, Italian food, great. Italian art, pretty good too. Not um, bad. Italian weather tends to be on the good side. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Italian music, Italian singing, um, Italian... Italian music since about the, I don't know, 17th century, you could raise certain issues with. <laughs> I mean, you'll always have a fan in Fernando, so... Exactly. I mean, it, it really depends who the target audience is and when, you, when you're looking at ourselves, for example, I don't think any of us would have any issue with it. Maybe, maybe we're just a proud people. What can I say? Well, we have therefore learned that Italy is in every way utterly irreproachable. Uh, Monocles, Chiara Ramella, Carlotta Rabello and Daniel Bache, thank you for joining us. That is all for today's show. Monocles House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocles House View returns at 9am Saturday London time and then again 1800 London time on Monday. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.